0: Just to remind you that uh, what we do together each night is um, monumental, it is uh, is a massive thing we're looking at tonight and I'm going to pray and ask that God might help us do that well, that he might help me speak clearly and well, but he might help you as people who are kind of engaging these things to to do that with honest hearts and minds, ready to hear, think, reflect and and learn and we uh, pray that God might do that amongst us, let's do that now. Our great God, we come to you tonight again conscious that we're dealing with things of incredible significance. And do ask, please, that you would help me speak in a way that's clear and understandable and true. And pray for those listening, please, that you would cause uh, us as listeners to have hearts that are genuine, sincere, with integrity, seeking to search out the truth. Please help us know ourselves and be in a place to genuinely investigate these things well. And I would pray for us tonight that you might do something wonderful amongst us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk to you about the danger of domestication. You would have heard the kind of language of domestication. It's um it's what happens to wild animals. You know, we take that um Wild lion, let's say, and um, take it out of the, uh, the the place where it's been uh, roaming and so on. Stick it in a cage in a compound. Pull out its claws, file its teeth back so it's not dangerous anymore. We shave off its mane so it, uh, you know it isn't scary. And then we, instead of feeding it red meat, we just start to feed it other stuff. I don't know um, uh, these burgers that these guys are talking about. We we feed you know we feed it tofu and things like this. And so it just slowly wastes away, and we put sort of guards around it with a cage so that it's safe and we can look on it and just prod it and be happy and be the powerful ones while it's domesticated and made small. And now, so much modern Christianity has domesticated the person of Jesus, has. Made him appear, now not made him like this because nothing can make Jesus like this, but made him appear ah, just weak, insipid, pathetic, stained glass windows with kind of glowing plates behind his head and drifting through the place as some whimsical little thing, tamed the glorious and great Jesus. And I want to say to you tonight, and say to you every night that we get together, um, that it matters that we take out the paint scraper. Do you remember the first week we were together on this series? We take out the paint scraper and get back to the original. Not what Christianity's presented things as, but go back to the source, go back to who Jesus really was, what he was actually like, and understand him for himself because he is, he is far more glorious, far more real, far more worthy of your life, far more terrifying than you could ever imagine. And this piece we're looking at, particularly tonight, the resurrection, makes all of that very obvious when you understand it. Now the resurrection is a topic that um, if you kind of pay attention, you'll find that every Easter, so we're coming up to Easter this year again of course, as you come up to Easter the newspapers and the TV and these kinds of things will start to, I mean, do you watch TV live? Probably not. Uh, You'll see shows come on about Easter and the resurrection and you'll get church leaders trotted out to talk about Easter, the resurrection. Now, almost always, and I don't know, it's not wanting to say be critical as if it's anyone's fault, but almost always the media, the message that is allowed to get through, maybe they're trying to say something, the message that's allowed to get through is that Jesus is really a life lesson on how, even though things go bad, there's always hope. You know, it's all about a metaphor of, You know, when there's a storm in your life, look at Jesus, he had a crucifixion, but then he came back to life again, metaphorically, poetry, you know, it's not real, of course, but he came back to life again and that's meant to be the inspiration of Easter for us today to know that there's always hope even though you're going through tough times. That's the message we hear. And I want to say to you, it's not even close to understanding the genuine Christian message. It it turns Jesus into a fairy tale. A man crushed by circumstances, weak and pathetic, who rises in our hearts to give us inspiration. It's a beautiful little story because it's safe. But it's not only safe, it makes you wonder why anyone died for Christianity. If all Christianity is is a story about being inspired in the midst of difficult circumstances, why did anyone bother giving up their life to promote that message? I wouldn't even let myself be bruised for a message like that, let alone someone take my life. And there's actually a hint that we've domesticated because people died for the true Jesus. People died to stand firm to the true Jesus. People died proclaiming the true Jesus, the resurrection, because Jesus isn't safe, he isn't domesticated. He is glorious and he's worthy and so I want to dig into this with you again tonight looking at the resurrection under three headings it's very simple and straightforward though lots of content we're going to wrestle with so time for questions and answers and so on Um, three headings what is the resurrection first one did it actually happen is there any evidence and third what difference does it make does it matter so let me take you through this. What is the resurrection? Now we use this word, Christians talk about the resurrection, but what actually is it? The resur- in its original context, it's not just the myth of someone dying and having inspiration to come back in some, it's not just that. It wasn't even the thought that someone died and came back to life again. That's not a resurrection, that's a resuscitation. A resurrection is the claim that someone died, came back to life, never to die again. In the Jewish world, which is, Jesus was a Jew, he was kind of raised in that context. In the Jewish world, the Jews had this hope and expectation one day there would be a resurrection age. There'd be a period of the future, we call it heaven, just very simply, but where there'd be a whole new creation... Uh, humanity would be reconciled to God, would be made themselves new, uh, they'd be given a new heart, a new spirit, uh, they'd be given a new body and they would live forever, there'd be no more death, there'd be no more sickness, no more um, uh, suffering, pain, hurt, no more racism, no more oppression, no more gender inequality, none of, all of those things gone, reconciliation to God and we live forever in a place that's perfect, wonderful and extraordinary. There is the resurrection age. The Jews believe that was in the future but the resurrection of Jesus is the claim that one man, 2,000 years ago, was born into that resurrection age while living in this age. He died and some days later came back to life never to die again, made new, a creature, a person, a person of that new heavenly age, the new age, the resurrection age. That is a massive claim to make about someone which begs the question of course did it happen? Did that, I mean that is an extraordinary thing to claim, did it actually happen? Well I want to go through the evidences or at least some evidences, not all of them, I'll mention there's many others but I want to consider the evidences with us tonight. Now I want to do this for all of us, now there are some of you here tonight going yeah I I don't, I'm not sure I believe in this. I, is there any evidence? So you're actually very interested in knowing what the evidence is And I want to give it to you. But I want to suggest that the evidences are important for all of us. So even if you're sitting there tonight and you go, I believe in the resurrection, I want to tell you you need to deal with the evidences as well. Let me tell you a couple of reasons why. Um, there will be a moment in your life, in your future, where you will, you will be shaken and rattled and you will have to dig down to find if there's any evidence. I've got a friend who was diagnosed with cancer, lung cancer some years ago now, which tells you a good news story, but he was given only 6 to 12 months to live. It was a very um, aggressive cancer of the lungs and a very rare one. Um, he was a Christian pastor. But what happened when that diagnosis came and death, he was in hospital, He was, and the diagnosis, he went through a crisis of faith. He found himself going, this thing I've been preaching, do I really believe it? Because death is now facing me full in the face. Do I believe when I die I'll be resurrected? And he had to search back through the evidences and work out again for himself. Now he's come through that in a wonderful way and has been extraordinarily confirmed and strengthened in his faith. And God has given him healing at the moment. Um, but you will have that moment. Every one of you will go through that time. It, it'll be the death of someone close to you. It'll be the cancer diagnosis that comes. It'll be an accident in a car. Something will happen to you, and you'll find yourself going, Really? Is it true? So much hangs on it now. Before it was just an idea, but now you need to actually think through the evidences. But there's another reason, too. One day you might find, I hope you find, your friends will ask you why you believe the resurrection. And it's important that you have something more to say than just, I believe. It's in the Bible. You know, the Bible itself indicates that it's wanting to give us evidences and not just have us kind of screw off our brains and throw them away and just believe no matter what. No, no, no. God wants you to be thoughtful in your, in your thinking, be adults, and engage with thoughtfulness around the evidences so that you've got something to say, so that you've got something deep for yourself as well, so that your faith is grounded not on superstition. It ought never be, it ought to be grounded on rock solid foundations of the truth. So the evidence for all of us, I'm going to take us through. I've got tonight I'm just going to deal with five, five of the big ones, I think. There's a bunch of others, but let me take you through those. You ready for this? Let me give you the first one. Evidence that the resurrection happened are the awkward parts in the accounts. The awkward parts. This account that we've just, Alex just read for us, we've been looking at Matthew's gospel has some pieces in it that are actually quite awkward for the first followers who wrote it. Uh, Matthew was one of the disciples of Jesus, he wrote this account and there's bits in here that are quite embarrassing. Now it's important to actually put a bit of context in place first. Have you heard of that thing called the, the fragile male ego? Okay, the girls are laughing. Men, have you heard of it? No, you just live it, and you don't ever know you live it, right? But you've got one. Every man has one, um, where y- you know you don't ever want to be the brunt of a joke. You don't want ever tell a sto- oh, brother. Thank you. You don't want ever tell a story that makes you look bad. You want to be the hero, or at least not bad. So you've got this male ego that's often very fragile. Well, let me tell you. Back in the first century, men were like men today. But a little bit more, because back in the first century, they didn't have a culture like we do, because we've been shaped by 2,000 years of Christianity. They didn't have a culture of humility, of valuing humility. It was all about success and power and prestige. And so it was even more intense back there. So you've got that little bit of background. With that in mind, notice in Matthew's account the bits that are awkward. And I'll show you a couple of them. Come with me if you've got your Bibles there to 20, chapter 26, verse 55. In that hour, Jesus so what's happened is Jesus has been arrested, Judas has come and betrayed him, uh, and Jesus says, Am I leading a rebellion? Verse 55 that you've come with swords and clubs to capture me every day. I sat in the temple courts teaching, you did not arrest me. But this all had to take place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Look at this. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. And it should have the word male in there. All the male disciples fled, Matthew included. Embarrassing, but he ran away. We know they ran away because as you go through the account, you'll find uh, that it's the women... Who continue courageously to be there. So at the crucifixion, uh, you'll find, if you go to chapter 27, uh, verse 55, many women were there watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. The men weren't there, the women were there. Matthew records this for us. At the tomb, if you look there, you'll see in verse 61. Uh, verse 60, they placed him in a tomb. Verse 61, Mary was there. The other Mary was sitting opposite. The women were there. Chapter 28, verse 1, at the Sabbath at dawn, the first day of the week, Mary, the other Mary, went to look at... Not the men. The men have fled. It's the women who were there. More than this, when Jesus rises and comes to them, if you go over to chapter 28, verse uh 17, you'll find that Matthew reports that some of them responded in worship of Jesus but others doubted. These are the leaders of this new movement who weren't captivated by it from the beginning. Now I want you to notice this, Matthew's writing this, if he was fabricating it, if he was making this story up to create a new movement where he was one of the leaders, don't you think he would have cast himself in a little bit better light? You have the chance to make up a story that millions of people across the world are going to follow, that the church is going to be established. You're going to be one of the leaders of it and you make, you've, you've got the opportunity to make it however you like. Wouldn't you make yourself... I, all the disciples fled, but I was there. Do you know what I mean? The women were watching and Matthew. What stops Matthew making himself look better? Back to the women... The first witnesses of the resurrection uh, were the women. Chapter 28, uh, you'll go through that little piece there and you'll find that Jesus appears first to the women and to Mary Magdalene. Now, again, a little bit of background. This is a patriarchal society. Now you might think today 21st century Western is patriarchy but back then we're talking uh, on steroids. And so it, it was such a kind of... Now I'm not agreeing with this, right, but back in that day... The testimony of women in a law court was not valid, it wasn't accepted. We have the writings of a man called Josephus, uh, who was not in the Bible here, but just an ancient writer in that century. He said these words, even the witness of multiple women is of no account. So that's the kind of culture. Women, we don't listen to you, you don't even get to speak in court. Now I'm not saying it's good, I'm just saying that's the way it is. But think again with me. You're Matthew, you're, let's pretend, going to make up this story to create this new movement of which you're a leader and you're going to tell a story that's itself quite unbelievable about a man rising from the grave and you decide to put your first witnesses, your chief witnesses to that event, women. Why would you do that if you're making it up? If you'd make it up, you'd stick some men in there. Again, what makes Matthew tell the story the way he did? In fact, what makes Mark do the same, Luke do the same, John do the same in that society? I'll tell you what made them do it. A determination to tell it exactly as it was. A conviction that what happened on that day 2,000 years ago was so monumental, it was so massive, it mattered so much that their male ego was of no account. That this thing was so important that we're going to tell exactly what happened even though it makes us look the way we looked because that people hear of that is so important, we don't care. And it happened to be the case that women were the first witnesses. And so we're scrupulously committed to the truth and we will tell it as it is, even though the culture will find it difficult to believe because it was women who first saw it. But this is a God thing, and so we'll let God deal with that. You see, these first leaders were utterly committed to telling the truth, even at the cost to themselves. And I want to suggest to you that is the first one of the pieces of evidence that tells you you are dealing with actual eyewitness accounts, not a manufactured, fabricated story by people who wanted to build their own movement. I'll give you the second piece of evidence that we're dealing with our eyewitness accounts. It's the names of the women. It is the names of the women. It's, uh, if you've been around Christian circles for any length of time and you've read your Bible at all, you'll notice that we have four accounts of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Matthew wrote one, Mark, Luke and John. Um, but each of the accounts, when they talk about the women going to the tomb on the first day of the week, early in the morning at dawn, when they talk about that event, they tell you about They give you different names of women who were there. So Matthew lists for us Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Now just for your information, Mary was an incredibly popular name in the Jewish context. Something like almost 20% of women were called Mary back then. Right? And they didn't have last names, so he had to disambiguate them some way. So, oh, Mary, Mary, Mary the mother of, oh, Mary from Magdalene, you know, that's what's going on here. But Matthew tells us about those two Marys who went to look at the tomb. He doesn't mention anyone else. But when you go and look at Mark's account, he includes those two women but adds another woman, a woman called Salome, who was also a very popular name in the ancient world. Then you look at Luke's Gospel, and he drops one of those names and adds another name. So we've now got a fourth name. And then you go to John's Gospel, which is the last Gospel written. John was written many decades after these Gospels. And you, don't get, you only get one person mentioned who goes, Mary Magdalene. So you get all these different names. Now, lots of people have said over the years that that's evidence that these Gospel accounts are unreliable. Because they can't even get the names right. They can't agree on who went to the tomb. But the very opposite's the case. There's a very important work that's been uh, put out in recent years by a man called Richard Borkham. It's quite a significant book on Jesus and the eyewitness accounts. And it goes, it's quite a technical book. It goes through all the names and various details. But compares the Gospel accounts to other ancient literature... Uh, where historical events are being recorded down through the centuries. It's a very important work. And he demonstrates powerfully in this book that the differences between the accounts and the names of the women mentioned are actually evidence of the fact that these accounts were written by people who were there. And each account and the differences reflect the fact that each account was written by someone at a different time and to a different audience, as eyewitnesses there. Now, to make this, to give you a sense of what he's talking about, let me give you an illustration about something that happened in my life. This is not a resurrection, this is something much... But many years ago, I used to go and get lobsters with a bunch of friends. We would go uh, to Spoon Bay and... The thing was we'd go there at one o'clock in the morning when there was no moon because the deal was this, I don't know if you realise this, but when there's no moon and it's midnight to one o'clock in the morning, um, the lobsters, which are normally kind of hidden under crevices during the day, they come out from their crevices and they walk around on the bottom of the ocean. So you don't have to kind of reach in and hunt into crevices. You can just go along with a strong torch and dive down and grab them. Now, uh, so we used to do this uh, at sort of early morning when there's no moon, a bunch of us would walk down the pathway at Spoon Bay and we'd go out diving around Spoon Bay to hunt lobsters. There was Pete Brown was there. There was a, a bunch of other guys, a guy called Kel was there. Uh, and we used to come back with a bunch of these lobsters. One of the painful things was, as we'd walk down the path, they'd start telling shark stories, which is always a bit of a disconcerting thing, right? Um, now, did you hear the story I just told? You hear me mention names. If I gave that same story in Coffs Harbour, where a bunch of our people have gone to start a new church, Anchor Church, which is going well, praise God. But if I told that story in Anchor Church, here's how I'd tell it. A bunch of us used to go down to Spoon Bay to hunt lobsters. Dean was there and a few others. I'd use a different name. Now think with me, why would I use a different name there than the names I use here? Give us your thoughts. Why would I use a different name there than here? Familiarity for who? The audience. the audience. Why would I use the, the name for the audience? I know Dave, but they don't have hmm. Up there, Dean lives there. He was here, but he now lives there. And so they know him. Ah, Dean was there. But here, Pete Brown, Kel still live here. So I mentioned their names because you might know them and you can check it out with them. You can find out whether these things are true or not because they're amongst us, these people. Do you see how I've changed the names? And I've not mentioned a bunch of other names. Now the women, this is the inside of this man, Richard Borkham, you see. Um, The different names are mentioned in the early accounts and, and, and that's because each account was written at a different time, so Matthew's written in a certain time to a certain group and Mary Magdalene's there and the other Mary's there. Salome's in the audience of another gospel writer. There, alive. So you know he says, these, these couple of women went. Go and check it out with them. These different women, because I'm writing to... When you get to John's gospel, which is much later, he only mentions Mary Magdalene. Why? Why do you think? The rest are dead. And Mary may be as well, but Mary is such a well-known name through the Gospel accounts and through history of the early church. What Richard Borkham says is this kind of stuff, just it reeks of straightforward eyewitness accounts and referencing of what's going on. In fact, we have a man called Papias who wrote in, towards the end of the first century, so within 30, 40 years of these events and so on, or 50 or so years of these events, Papias who writes about knowing the written accounts of Jesus, but also said that he preferred to go and talk to the eyewitnesses and actually knew the daughters of Philip, if you know the book of Acts. He lived with them, grew up in the same town. This is history. (laughs) And here's another piece of evidence for you. Number three, the fact of the empty tomb. Everyone agrees the tomb is empty. There has never been a pilgrimage to the tomb. We don't even know where the tomb actually is. Some people think they know, but we don't really know because no one made the tomb a pilgrimage because there was no body there. Everyone agreed there's no body. It's a fact of history there's no body there. The question is, where did the body go? And there's a whole section in chapter 28. If you look at verse 11 down to verse 15 there, you'll see a whole discussion that happens between... Uh, the guards who were guarding the tomb and the chief priests, verse 12, when the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. While we the guards were asleep? Anyway, if this report gets to the governor, it will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money, did as they were instructed and this story has been widely circulated amongst the Jews to this very day which tells you that when Matthew is writing, he's writing early enough that that story is still doing the rounds. Now the point here is this, everybody agreed that the body was gone but these Jewish leaders and the guards made up a story to explain it. And here's the thing, my wife said this to me the other day, she said, you know what's compelling? That's all they've got. That's all they had to try and pull the pin on this new movement as it began. Why didn't they just pull out the body? There was no body to pull out. So the authorities haven't taken it, it's not in the tomb. What's left? Either he's risen or the disciples have got it. But if they've got it, really, are they that kind of people to foist this fabrication like they're claiming to? It's an extraordinary piece of evidence, the empty tomb. Let me give you the fourth one, which plays into this. The lives of those early witnesses. These men who wrote these accounts were scrupulous in their concern for the truth. Not just in writing what actually happened, even though it caused them, you know, the awkward things hit them hard. Not just in writing, but in their lives. Um, They were renowned for their pursuit of righteousness and integrity. Every one of them died testifying that they saw this happen, except one man, John, who was in prison to his dying day. They lost everything insisting that this event happened. Not one of them changed their story. Listen to some of the language they used. Um, uh, You you go to Acts chapter 5, let's see if we can click quickly flip over to there Acts chapter 5 where they're being uh, pressed to stop Peter says we must obey God rather than human beings the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead whom you killed by hanging on a cross God has exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins we are witnesses of these things we saw them he says again and again they fight to say this Paul, the uh, apostle, 1 Corinthians 15, talks about the four great truths of the gospel, that Christ has died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day, that he was seen by thousands of witnesses, well, hundreds of witnesses. And, And he says this, if Christ has not been raised, we are liars. We're found out to be liars. We insist it happens, he says. John, one of the people there said this in his first letter, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim to you. Desperately fighting to say this is true. And they insisted that all of this was real to their very death. They were men totally transformed by the experience. You remember they fled with the, with the arrest of Jesus. They all ran away, Cowards. But some weeks after the event of the resurrection, they stand in front of a hostile crowd and said, you killed the Lord of glory. God has raised him to life again. Repent. What changed a person from that to this? The resurrection. That was the fourth evidence of the reliability of this. The fifth. The fifth evidence is the rise of the early church. In the very city where it was said this thing happened, just think about this, if you want to put out a story that um, I'm Andrew Heard's actually God and uh, has come back to life again from the grave, never to die again, if you want to put out a story like that, here's a couple of tips. Uh, uh, don't try and do it in Erina on the Central Coast uh, while people are alive who knew me uh, and then saw me buried. Why? Because there'll be too many people to challenge your story. Do it a long way away and many years after when there's no one around to actually verify or deny. You see, if you want to get away with something, that's what you do. But these people proclaimed the resurrection 200 metres from the tomb that Jesus' body was put in, within a few weeks of it happening. And you know what? Thousands believed. 3,000 men, 5,000 men, thousands of women and children. In the very city within a month. Why? Because you could go and check out the tomb, you could check out the stories. You know, the the evidence is extraordinary for the reliability of this account. And let me give you just to mention some other things. The nature of the witness experiences, how There was a variety of them, it wasn't just Jesus once, it was Jesus to one person, Jesus to a pair of people, Jesus to 500 people, Jesus to all the disciples. In the morning, at night, in the afternoon, and all over the place in different ways, Jesus ate with them. The nature of the witness testament is extraordinary. The conversion of the Apostle Paul from hostile hater on the Christians to someone who was a passionate, devoted follower of Christ because he saw the risen Jesus. You get the link with prophetic hope, the fact that the prophecies of the Old Testament are fulfilled in detail in this kind of thing. It's extraordinary. You get the personal experience of so many Christians today who know the risen Jesus. The evidences are remarkable. Friends, this thing happened. Jesus was raised to life again, resurrected. It happened just as they said. And it changes everything. It changes everything. That's the third and last thing to draw attention to. I've got four points here. The first two go fairly quickly. And the second two, the last two, are the important ones. So you're with me. Stick with us. First two are obvious, actually. If the resurrection has occurred, I'll give you two very obvious implications. The first is this. Miracles happen. Science isn't the last word on life. I'll give you the second This life isn't all there is. If the resurrection actually happened, do you remember what it is? The resurrection is not just someone coming back to life to die again, but someone born into a whole new age that's the age of eternity, the age to come, someone born alive to never die again. If that's what happened with the resurrection of Jesus, that is proof, therefore, that that age is real. It's proof that there's more to life than this life. In the New Testament, he's called the first fruits of that new age. And that is profound. It is a shattering historical event. It it has changed human life and history the moment Jesus walked out of the grave. Our world is not the same anymore. We We live on a planet that has a resurrected person. You know, to live like this is all there is, to live as if this is the only world and only life, is insanity. The problem is we look around and we are, we are surrounded by people who think this is all there is. We, we even have a little word for it, it's called, you, you know, people go, uh, you only, you know, yolo, you only live once. We've got a whole bunch of people who just think like that, that this is all there is, you're born, you die, make the most of these few years because that's it. Now when you're surrounded by people like that, you tend to absorb it and we can end up starting to live like that as well. But here's the deal, the resurrection of Jesus says that you don't only live once, you don't. This life isn't it, it never has been. The resurrection makes it abundantly clear. There's an age to come where death is gone, where evil is gone, where every hope that you have had for this life will be fulfilled in the life to come. Every good thing you've longed for will one day be fulfilled. And that's not a pipe dream. Jesus is the absolute assurance that these things are real and true. You know, your life here, I don't know if you've found this, but in our lives here, there are moments of joy and gladness. There are things that happen where you go, this is awesome, life's actually pretty good. Central Coast is great. Now, I know some of you haven't experienced much of that because you're having a really tough time. But some of you go, yeah, I, the sun, the water, the beautiful experience, the friends, I'm loving this. But then they don't last. You have those moments... And I don't know, you go home and it crashes. Or you go and hang out with friends who are cruel to you. Or you find yourself alone and you go, life sucks. But you have moments when it's there. And those moments are like the promise of something that should be, that could be, maybe is. But just over the horizon. Well, the resurrection guarantees that there is an horizon. And there is something over it. And it is wonderful. And that that experience that you're having, there must be something more, is because God has put eternity into your hearts. To live this life as if this is all there is, is is no greater tragedy. It's like going to Womberall car park and never getting to the beach, do you know? It's like going to the movies and watching all the ads and walking out before the movie starts you know it's just it's an insanity to miss out on the very point of your life why wouldn't you look at this you know Derek lovely to hear him he he, he lies back he sees the trees and he goes there's got to be something more haven't you felt that don't let that go explore it investigate why wouldn't you Why wouldn't you dig further to find out if these things are true? The evidence is astonishing, I've given you a taste of it. You know what, if there was nothing riding on it, if there was no big deal at stake about the evidences, we'd all just go, yeah, it's true. Why don't people therefore believe it? Because of the next two big ones. The difference it makes, it's confronting the next two ones. Let me give you the third difference that the resurrection makes. If the resurrection is true, that means Jesus is who he says he is, the Lord of heaven and hell, the Lord of life and death, the ruler, the king, the boss, whatever word you can think. The ruler over you, over every human on the planet. Now how does that follow? How does the resurrection show Jesus is that one? Well he says it's the case there in chapter 28 verse 18. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. But how is that the case? Let me give you a quick bit of background. In the Old Testament, there were these prophecies about the resurrection age to come. But buried within them were prophecies too about the one who would bring it. He would be a great and powerful king who would never die or who would never see decay. He would live forever. And so the evidence that the king has come is that he is one who is not left in the grave to decay. Psalm 16, Psalm 110, 2 Samuel 7, Daniel chapter 7, all give these prophecies and expectations and hopes. The resurrection of Jesus was the indication to everyone who knew these prophecies he is the King. He's the Messiah, the Lord, we've been waiting for. God has exalted him to his own right hand as King. So you see, friends, there is a great deal at stake in whether the resurrection happened or not. Because if it happened, then Jesus is Lord and you're not. If the resurrection happened, you have been wrong to live as if life is yours to do with it as you please. You've been wrong if the resurrection happened and you need to repent you see how it's now threatening this isn't just an idea this is actually a person who confronts me and says I'm your Lord, you were made for me repent, bow the knee, recognise the truth of who I am those early preachers, this is the very big sermon they preached repeatedly the resurrection, the Lord has come, bow Let me give you the last one. The resurrection also says Jesus is saviour. His death worked to save us because of the resurrection. Now how does the resurrection demonstrate that? Well, if sin demands death, then someone's return to life shows that the sin has been paid for. Jesus' death for sin in your place, the fact that, he has been raised, demonstrates that his payment for you has been received. Your debt has been paid. He has been raised and if you put your trust in him, you'll be raised with him. He is saviour. Which means Jesus is someone that you can put your trust in and know that there's no hole too deep that he won't forgive you. There's no there's no shame too great that you can't come back now to this God because of the resurrection of Jesus. It stamped him as the one who has paid your debt in full. He's saviour. Now, we've covered a lot of ground tonight. But really, it's only two big ideas. The resurrection's happened. Everything's changed. And the implications are massive. There's a miraculous world we live in. There's a life to come. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Saviour. Now what do you do with that? Whatever you do, don't do this. Don't respond by saying, I could never become a Christian because I don't like what Jesus teaches. I could never be a Christian because I don't like what the Bible says about men and women and sexuality and what it says about um, uh, marriage and how married... I don't like that stuff so I could never be a Christian. What? You imagine someone arguing with you about whether America went to the moon in 1969, whether they landed on the moon and, and you say they did, here's all the evidence. And you say, I don't believe they landed on the moon because I don't like American politics go, what are you talking about? The fact that you don't like Jesus' teachings does not impinge one iota on whether this event happened or not. And here's the thing, if the resurrection happened, then he is Lord, he's the Lord God of the universe and your perceptions about where you disagree with him on his values, you're the one who's got it wrong, not him. It's at that moment you go, if he is who he says he is, then perhaps his views on sexuality, marriage, church, life, the, if the fact that he has those views that are different to mine, the problem must be with me. Because the resurrection says he is who he says he is. But friends, start there. This was a determination I made in my late uh, young adult years, I came to a point of saying to myself, I will go wherever the truth takes me. I don't like what it means for my life. I'm not sure I'm keen on where I'm going to go with it if it's true, but I'm going to pursue it if it is true, wherever it takes me. And that little piece was under God the key to opening my mind to see the evidence and be persuaded. And then I looked at it honestly, was captivated by the person of Jesus, and he has now transformed my life and I'm so glad for it. And you'll be glad for it too let's pause there and see if there are any questions do you want to do that I've got a couple of things to say to finish with but yeah
1: great well thanks everyone for your questions I've got a few quick ones and a few longer ones mm-hmm. um, first quick one can you confirm what the book and author that confirmed those women's names Uh Richard Borkham. what's the book
0: Jesus and uh, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, I think it's called.
1: Great. Yeah. Helpful. Okay.
0: Yeah. It's a te- It's quite a technical book, but mm. yeah, have it. Have a go at it.
1: I wonder if he's done a lecture or something.
0: Yeah, you might find or him a speaking podcast. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I might try and find Somebody some links.
1: Do. I might try and find some links for us. Yeah. That would um, be good. How do we know that Christianity did grow quickly at the beginning? Could that have been an idea that developed over time?
0: Oh, that it grew quickly, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, yes and no. So the... the the little challenge there is you've got, you're now dealing with um, concrete stuff so that church buildings began to pop up. We've got, um, we've got evidence of um, houses that were expanded to fit more and more churches in to worship Jesus as God from 110-ish AD. So you've got the growth of the church just as a physical entity immediately exploding. And of course, by 300 AD, it's now the formal religion of the empire so it grew quickly. Well, sorry, um, it grew steadily, and um, it certainly had a big start. Yeah. So you've got you've got in AD forty nine, a man called Claudius. Let me get uh, uh, one of the emperors of Rome kicked out Christ, kicked out a group of people, Jews out of Rome. This is outside of the Bible. Kicked out of, kicked the Jews out of Rome. Over because of a dispute over Crestus, the Christ. So in Rome, by that time, 49 AD, check the facts, you've got a dispute in Rome over the Christian faith. Wow. Yeah, that's just history for us, yeah.
1: That's helpful. Um, okay, I'm going to keep pushing yeah, yeah, through. Yeah. Um, you mentioned a bit about Easter in your intro about domestication, and I think this question is relating to that. So, do you think Easter is one way Jesus' resurrection has been domesticated? Domesticated, yeah. Would it be better to do a Passover instead?
0: Oh, are we talking just the word there at that point? Do you, um... I think yeah, okay, the kind of me... the
1: vibe is is the way we're doing Easter maybe contributing no, to no, domestication. No, no, no. I don't.
0: I don't think the way we're doing Easter is the problem. I think it's. I think what's happened over two thousand years is that churches have become. You know, Christianity has become a very broad thing and the whole idea of a Jesus who is terrifying like the true Jesus of the Bible has become quite, you know, we've slowly taken his claws out and shaved back his fangs and stuff and turned him into just a loving, forgiving, whatever you want, give you morals, we're all Christians anyway and it'll all be okay thing. And in that context you then go, what about the death and resurrection? What was that about? Ah, it was just a myth. So there's the problem, it's how we've underst- how churches in the 21st century are understanding the Christian message. It's not that we get together on Easter and celebrate Good Friday and Sunday, that's not the problem. And going back to the Passover is the very... See, Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, got the disciples together and said, celebrate this Passover event now in remembrance of me. So for us to go back to a Passover celebration would be to actually almost ignore the fact Jesus has fulfilled it. Yeah.
1: But we eat lamb at church. Sure. So it's a sort of Passover. <laughs> sure. <But laughs> no, I don't know what I'm saying. Ignore yeah. all that. <laughs> just...
0: We really should then slaughter them out the front yeah. there. And
1: <laughs> Let that blood drip. Sprinkle blood over it. Now, would you
0: come if we did that, <laughs> yeah. actually? Shall we put I it know over a bunch the door of you? I'll be there, and a bunch of you going, no way. <laughs>
1: yeah. um, okay. Um, so where is Jesus now, and what happens when we die? That's kind of like a two-part.
0: Okay. Um, Well, the the end of... And that's the last one, by the way. Okay. Well, let's finish there. I'll sit down. So um, what you've got in uh, Acts chapter 1, you have Jesus uh, ascends um, to the right hand of the Father bodily and so is now ruling uh, the universe as the exalted Son of God, man, God, man. Um, That's where he is now. Now, why is He there and not here? Well, He's here by His Spirit, John 14 to 16. He is present with us by His Spirit, Romans chapter 8. Um, But He's he's not here physically amongst us and I'll tell you why. Because for Him to return would be to end everything. It would be to finish this age and start the new one. And the problem with that is, as soon as He does that, There's no more chance for people to be saved. That's the end. Game over. And God is a gracious God who's giving you one more day. And he's patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish. So he doesn't come back. He doesn't come back to give you one more day to repent, to bring your parents, your family, your friends, your workmates to faith. Gives you one more day. That's why he's, he's not come back. That's why he's not here, except by his spirit. Um, what was the last question? Oh, what, happens when we die? what happens when we die? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is the passage to look at. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 talks about the tent. And if you follow the, the argument through, you'll find the language of tent is this mortal body. And I take it the Apostle... There's some debate around these things, but I take it the Apostle Paul is saying, uh, upon death, if Christ has not returned then our body rots in the grave and our spirit is freed to go and be with Christ, waiting for his return and when he comes back in the great parousia, our bodies will be raised and we'll be made whole again, body, spirit, to live forever with him. There's what I understand happens. It's not soul sleep. So there was a view around for a long time that you know, like you go on holidays with your parents, uh, once upon a time, you'd, they'd stick you in the car, back in my day, they'd stick you in the back of the car without seatbelts on and you'd, just, you'd fall asleep as soon as the car started and three or four hours later you'd wake up and you'd be there. As far as you were concerned, it was a very quick trip. But. Um Uh, And the view was that when you died, you'd go to sleep and when Christ returned, you'd wake up. So however long it was, it didn't feel like any length of time. But I don't think that's what the New Testament teaches. Um, There you are. Let me finish by saying this, brothers and sisters. Um, Do not domesticate Jesus. The resurrection tells you that he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is your saviour, your only hope. We will all one day stand before him as glad, submissive servants or broken enemies who are made to bow. Don't be the second. The resurrection makes it very, very serious. This is real. We live in a world where a resurrection has happened. The most important fact of human history, as I say that, the creation is a pretty important fact too. But the resurrection is massive, monumental, that Jesus is who he says he is. Repent and come back and live your life aware that we're on borrowed time. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we do ask please that you might help us See the truth of these things, be convicted, persuaded of them and help us then live in light of them. Help us truly embrace what has actually happened and let that shape our whole life. Let us be different to the people around us, we pray. I pray for those amongst us who are exploring these things that you would give them hearts and minds that are seekers after the truth. You would help them reflect deeply on these things and see for themselves who you are and what you've done in Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.